dreamers, innovators, and trailblazers are the people who inspire us and work towards positive changes. At Penn State, their ideas have the power to transform the way teaching and learning happen. The Dreamery Sessions are conversations with faculty and students that bring you the stories of how innovation driven by technology happens at our university. Welcome to the Dreamery Sessions with Ray Schmidt and Zach Lunsinger. It's not often that you walk into a classroom and automatically feel excitement. When you think about a higher education or even a high school classroom, a lot of times you think of the chalkboard, the desks bolted to the seats, and it can feel just traditional. It's what you're used to. It doesn't generate a lot of excitement. But on today's episode of the Dreamery Sessions, we have a guest with us who is going to talk about a classroom at Penn State that is getting a lot of people excited, especially himself. Daniel Foster is with us today. He's an associate professor of agriculture education at Penn State. The room that we're talking about is in the Agricultural Science Building Room 110. It is an experimental classroom. It's thrilling, a really cool room, a really cool atmosphere, and it's got the potential for a lot of exciting things to happen over the course of the next semester, the next years. Who knows what's going to come out of this space? It's almost hard to put words to it, isn't it, Ray? It really we, is. We Thank need you. to make sure that we invite everybody <laughs> to come to ASI 110, Ag Sciences and Industries, and see what maybe the classroom of the future might look like. I just know that we're going to do some neat, fun space in there and most importantly it's not about the space but the space is going to empower the educators who are in that room to do their thing i'm so honored and stoked uh, straight up to be here talking to you and zach and this idea of the dreamery sessions and what a better place to do it than innovation park the synergy like <laughs> we're doing the dreamery sessions here at the lab at the studio on innovation park because that's what penn state's about penn state is about taking moonshots Penn State is about seeking new ways to do things right to help students succeed. And when we start with that, when we care about student success, we have to think about the teachers and the educators. And so that's like my jam. My jam is how do I empower and coach educators? As a teacher educator in agriculture, I work specifically with secondary agriculture teachers, those FFA advisors who are going out and teaching about food, fiber, and natural resources. But also, as a faculty member invested in teaching and learning, assist our extension educators across the state of Pennsylvania, knowing our proud land-grant heritage and history here at Penn State University, Farmers High School. That's where we started. We can't ever forget that that's, that's right. what we are, man. We rock it out since 1855 with research, education, and extension and outreach. Absolutely. Um, and then the last layer of that, and this is really gets really meta for me to talk with you all about, is... I get to work with graduate students in our College of Agricultural and Life Sciences who maybe are studying their primary discipline to solve climate change, to work with entomology and to work in animal sciences or agricultural engineering or plant pathology, but they love students and they know when we approach these wicked challenges that we're facing us in the world that they can't do it alone. They're not going to achieve it just in their research lab. They're not maybe are going to be able to truly address this in their lifetime. And so if through their teaching, if they can be effective in teaching and inspiring, they can build their team of others excited and passionate about entomology, plant pathology, or their discipline, and to help carry on that work. Great teachers are made, not born. 
And when we talk about that, the most important element is grit and persistence and willing to fail. I just told you that most of my life is teaching others about teaching. Guys, my SRTs, and I'm going to try to keep this appropriate for the audience and use good language and all that. My SRTs, I think most times suck. I get a pit in my stomach when I have to go look at them, and I think it's because I also hold that high standard. And I'm also not afraid to try a new idea that sometimes fail. And the great teachers that we're going to have, because we want our students to not be afraid to fail, they can't be afraid to fail and try something new either. I love how you said you're not afraid to fail. You're not afraid to try new things. And this next question teases a little bit into that. But what was your attraction to teach in this classroom? And before you answer that question, what are you teaching? What's the class you're teaching? And how does that course fit into what you're going to be doing in this classroom? I've referenced it a little bit, but I'll have three courses in the next two semesters. In the fall semester, I'll be teaching methods of teaching agriculture to my seniors who are preparing to go on their student teaching internship. And so we're going to be talking about how do we teach effectively, how do we assess, how do we design, and how do we align to have for student success in this exciting environment. The other course I teach, I call it my nerd course. It's totally one of those little things you just deep dive in because what a lot of people don't know is I'm also so besides being an associate professor at Penn State and chasing this academic life, I am a professionally registered parliamentarian. So Robert's Rules of Order and how do we run meetings and agendas and bylaws. And we teach a class called Practical Parliamentary Procedure because all of us have sit into too many meetings that suck. And you shouldn't have to go to meetings that suck. And so if we know and use certain skill sets through Robert's Rules of Order, we can have better meetings. So those are the fall classes. And in the spring, my graduate level teaching and learning in agricultural sciences for all disciplines. And when you ask me what I'm most excited about, whiteboards. <laughs> I, I mean, I know that that sounds well. What's your favorite technology? I love technology and opportunity that allows someone to put an idea down, show it and share it and collaborate it, and then not feel like they've etched it in stone because they can just erase it. And we can just word vomit. Sometimes we have to just word vomit. Sometimes we just have to put things out there, see what sticks, and then begin the process of critical thinking and evaluation, moving up Bloom's taxonomy to refine it to that takeaway, to that nugget of knowledge. And when we walk into the room, the overpowering sensation of ASI 110 is one of there's writable space and it's flexible space. I don't have to go into the rows and columns where this is where I sit and I can't move and talk to anybody. The chairs roll, the tables roll, the tables flip and can make different whiteboards that you can push together. We can do pod conversations. And I therefore feel challenged as an educator to evaluate how I deliver information, how I challenge students to maximize that space because it's going to be different. You kind of touched on some meta elements earlier in our conversation, and that's one of the things that's interesting to me because one of the courses that you mentioned, the methods of teaching agriculture, and that's a bit of a meta topic in and of itself because you're a teacher teaching other students how they are going to teach these topics, and then you're also doing it in an experimental classroom. And the thing that gets me going, gets me excited is that you have this passion for how teaching and learning happens. And I think that's such a critical element because to get better as educators, you have to have people who are thinking about that. How are we doing this? What works? What doesn't work? What needs to be adjusted so that we can produce better outcomes for the students? So what is it about studying how teaching and learning happens that excites you? Where does that passion come from? 
I'm going to challenge these guys. One of my goals of the podcast is to introduce your audience to some awesome new music that I uh, partake of. See, I am down with Red Dirt Country, Americana, Texas Country, however you want it. And there's one song by a fella named Hayes Carl. And Hayes is uh, the next Waylon Jennings. He's one of my favorite. And he has a song called If I May Be So Bold. And I found that I've been listening to it hardcore this summer. And I'm like, dude, this is my theme song for ASI 110. Because the critical lyric in there is, if I may be so bold to care, if I may be so bold to give a damn. And if I can have teachers and students, when we talk about changing education, give a damn. So I apologize for the language, but that really is it. Am I just showing up to your space on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday from 8 to 9 because I'm supposed to and I paid you money and this is some weird transactional relationship that at the end you're going to give me a grade so I can get a diploma and I go and I never think about again? Or do I really care about the content that I'm learning to develop the knowledge, skills, and dispositions that I believe applies to my desire to make a difference in the world? That challenge then, that's your number one challenge to me in every class, no matter what we're teaching and what content, is how do we connect? That what we're doing here matters. That the fact, for example, you, Ray, and Zach, and I in this room together for this moment of time matters. It matters that we can engage and do things that we couldn't otherwise do. I love technology. I like geeking out. I'm an early adopter, jumping in and trying new things. But I've seen some people, I think, mischaracterize some of the technological influences on what we're going with education. Technology has made information readily available. And so what that really comes down to, the phrase I'll use with students is, we want to create non-Googable experiences. ASI 110 is about being a non-Googable experience. You just can't go Google and find a YouTube channel or show and watch it and get what we're going to do here in this class session because it's about what you bring to the table, what the person sitting next to you bring to the table, how we collaborate, and where we end up. Now, that's easier said than done, but that, that is the true challenge. If they can just get whatever we're doing from a MOOC that they can go get for free online, then what is the point of our process? And if I look and listen to those who are hiring our graduates, I hear them talking about the need to have problem solvers who can think critically, who can be creative in approaching that, and who can work with others to end up with successful outcomes. So we take our content as a context to inspire our students to give a damn, to reach that point of working with others, and to create new meaning, not just regurgitate what we put out to them. Everything you're saying is so true. And you mentioned a Googleable experience. You mentioned this process. You mentioned the need to create problem solvers and critical thinkers. And this year you're teaching in an experimental classroom. So that's an evolution for you because I believe this is the first time you're teaching in a space that is considered experimental. When you started at Penn State, how has your teaching evolved from teaching ag education at Penn State from 2009 until today? I think all great teachers have to channel this notion or this desire of humbleness. I I think all great teachers know that we never get it right and that every new group of students every new year as the content, we're always refreshing and re-engaging. And if I think back to it, my first year as a faculty member in 2009 with this particular course, I was just so worried about covering everything. So I carry a lot of internal stress. This class is our senior capstone class. is extremely important. It lays the foundational skill set they're going to use rapidly in their internship in the spring 
They've spent four years for this degree. If the literature and the research and the wisdom of practice tells me that if the internship in the spring goes bad, they're not going to enter the profession. And so then when I know in the bigger picture world that I've had a shortage of secondary school-based ag teachers for 30 years, I feel like a failure because I took someone who invested three and a half years. They had a bad internship and then they didn't enter the profession. And then I have schools, communities, and children who don't have the teacher they need and deserve. You're like, okay, come on, roll back some. I'm like, well, I then look at why do internships fail? Internships fail most of the time in my world because of lack of preparation. A teaching session doesn't go well when we don't prepare and think through what's going to happen. At the very beginning in 2009, I carried this stress way too heavy about I have to cover everything. Well, cats cover things in litter boxes. (laughs) Okay? Uh, That shouldn't be the intention and purpose of our college classes is to cover things. What I really needed to do, and I've evolved to a point of taking more risks, of allow my student teachers, my seniors, to explore and identify what they need, to collaborate, to realize that failure is inevitable, but it's not terminal. That it is a situation where we will have shortcomings, but the key is fall down seven times, stand up eight, and keep trying to get better. And knowing and conveying to your students that we're working together as a team for their success. And so that's helped me view, it's much less about me sharing what I call the stuff from the books, the stuff that can be memorized. I'll refer to it. I'll give it to them so they can access it later when they're at that point of need. But it's more about building confidence and having them problem solve and engage and apply. And since I'm a Dewey disciple, John Dewey, for those sitting at home, look him up, great man, hero of modern American education, in my opinion, who said that learning by doing is important, that experience matters. I always have been that, so why did I walk away from it when all of a sudden I allowed the stress to internalize I'm at Penn State, and by God, they have to be ready. I've seen through maturity and time and experience providing more space for each student to have an individual experience. So going into this experimental classroom, I think I'm going to have more opportunity for that. I wasted so much time being frustrated that, well, you have 50 minutes and you're coming into this general purpose classroom and this is the way it should look. And when you leave, it needs to look the same way. And we're probably going to sit up in rows and columns because that's the default, not looking at students engaging. So I can't tell you how much time I spent getting there early, creating pods, and then trying to get it pushed back at the end or asking students to help, irritating the next faculty member that's waiting so they can get in there and show their PowerPoint because I have pods all over the place. And so I've been empowered with this space that there's not a default. They've told me, no, leave it how you want. The next person will move it how they want. This is meant to be a flexible, adaptable space to meet the learning needs of that class, those students, and that day. And that's probably the most exciting. It's inspiring to hear you talk. And I think I can speak for Zach pretty safely on this, that hopefully there are listeners out there who's going to hear this message and share that inspiration because it's hard to envision a situation when someone who cares as much as you do that it's not going to lead to good things for the students down the road. It's really exciting to be able to have this conversation with you. And I want to circle back to something that you said a little while ago about being an early adopter and a tech geek and not being afraid to dive right in with something that might be new and exciting out there. You've done work with 360 degree video in the past. You've done work with other immersive technology in the past. Now you're getting into an experimental classroom for the first time. For you, how do you evaluate? What do you take stock in when a technology is coming to market and you think that it might be something that you want to work with? Most of the time, to be honest, I'm looking at it as how easy will it be replicated? 
And so that's the nature of where I'm at as far as profession. Since I'm preparing future teachers, I don't want to get them excited to use something and then say, and if you only had 50,000, you could do this too. That's why when you ask me what do I love most about the ASI 110, it's whiteboards. You know, I can spend 12 bucks, go to Home Depot or Lowe's and buy a piece of four by eight sheet, cut it up in one by ones and use whiteboard markers and have an audience response system. And so I know that they can go and replicate this if they can see and role model how they engage in that space. 360 video, when we stepped in, it was a little bit higher, but I was kind of using the mindset watching like how we saw VCRs or we saw some of these other technologies that usually start off high and then we kind of get down. And it's quite affordable now that most schools can engage in that. And a shout out, you know, I always try to find those individuals who can move that needle further. I have a colleague in Texas A&M, Dr. O.P. McCubbins, and he's created the Aggie Immersive Experience Lab to advance teaching and learning in food, fiber, and natural resources around these immersive experiences, starting with some of the things we did early, and he's just taking it to the next level, and I love that, to make it accessible to secondary teachers and educators in low-resource environments. Like, how sad is it? If the technology that we use, the story that we tell, is only successful if you're at University Park in Pennsylvania. If it's so fragile that it has to be in this certain environment with this certain level of resources and can't be taken to the masses. And what you're hearing from me is that why I love and have chosen always to work at a land-grant institution that was designed to help the common man to reach out to the people, not just to the elite who are going to other schools, but to everybody. How do we take what we do at Penn State to the world, to the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania? And so our president, Eric Barron, he inspires me when he talks about Invent Penn State and about taking skills and making sure that we're serving the Commonwealth and harnessing the power of all of our campuses in our university, one university geographically dispersed to serve all the citizens of Pennsylvania. And so when I analyze technology, I'm always thinking about how can it be replicated, what's the cost point of entry, and how can we use it to move that needle. What we do of teaching is important. What we do in research is important. And the process in research for it to go out is peer review. It's public. You read and you analyze and you think. If we look at the scholarship of teaching and learning, it should be a public process open to engagement. So with that, I say to anybody, come to ASI 110. You're free to sit in there. The methods class will be in that class 8 to 10 on Mondays and 9 to 10 on Fridays. The Parley Pro class, really fun one, could be there from 1210 to 120, I believe, on Tuesday and Thursday. In the spring, Wednesday afternoons, 4 to 7, come down and see how we do it because I think that we need to do everything we can to make our classes, our education public to our peers as we build communities of practice from one faculty member to another so that we can share those best practices. So I'm stoked that ASI 110 is right next door to the Immersive Experiences Lab in ASI, and I believe that's going to provide opportunity and ease to say, hey, next door, guys, y'all can drop in and create this artifact and use it. I know it's difficult with resources when we make these decisions and think strategically, but proximity does matter. So I'm excited about that. Yeah, I definitely agree. We need to keep our education public with open doors. We need to work on access. And I love how you talked about 360 video and with the IMAX being right next to ASI 110. I think that's very important. I think we need more experiences like that and more labs with open access for students and faculty. But talking about 360 degree video and cameras, 
And before we started the podcast, we were talking a little bit about a podcast you started. So it seems like you're always experimenting with new technology or new mediums. And as you said, you're an early adopter. So I'm sure that you're always on the lookout for new technology or new educational technology. Is there something out there that you have your eyes on? Or is there something that you're excited to get to use in your teaching and learning for this upcoming year? You know, that's a great question. And I can tell you that problem that I'm trying to cut through that I'm focusing and watching the most is cutting through the digital clutter. I just think that our students and their bandwidth is overwhelmed. And so I'm looking for ways. What is the ideal process for us to communicate effectively and work together and so that I can have you have access to these resources because I'm jumping on that train of the stuff that's important won't always just come out of my mouth. That's not how we've designed this class. You can't just come in here and expect to be filled and have your head open. I'm just going to pour in there and whatever he says is all that's important. I'm going to refer to different articles, different readings, different case studies, different places for you to explore and think. And that's all well and good. But how do they know how to find it and not lose it? You know, we go to paperless societies. Like sometimes I'm reverting for novelty. The key is variability. And so we go like, oh, we're all digital. There's no paper. And then they can't find anything or they don't know where it is. It's not organized. Uh, and sometimes when I hand them an article and say, we need to read this, it's amazing just because they haven't held paper in so long that they actually think that that's good. That's reassuring that we can work through. So an example, let's talk about a teaching strategy I've used to begin to approach this. I'm sure like many of our listeners, email has frustrated them, whether it's people don't read it, people don't respond it, props to Ray for knowing faculty are hard to get a hold of, and he sent an email, but then he's like, hey, Twitter direct message, because I know that you're on this Twitter thing, which I love. I'm like, yep, you're cutting through the noise. You're trying to find the best platform to get to me. So I usually start my class with students and say, how do you want to communicate? Uh, we need to determine, we need to norm as a group here, are communication platforms that we can depend on. Now, this is where I am not held to the same parameters as Sam Richards. I love and watch and admire Sam and what he does, but he has huge classes. Mad respect for that. My classes are small, 20 to 30 people, right? Easier to make this kind of group consensus, and I can actually build it in to a teaching method to show them to determine. But, for example, last year they chose GroupMe. Now, I wasn't on GroupMe, but this is a messaging app that allows, but they were down with it. And I saw a difference because they chose it. And so what we're really doing is not pushing a platform that we prefer, a tool. It's we're identifying a problem and remembering those drivers of motivation. I loved when TLT, best professional development at Penn State, TLT Symposium, they brought in Daniel Pink, and he had a book called Drive. Uh, and he did a great job of connecting to intrinsic and extrinsic motivations. So... Part of that motivation is autonomy and choice. And so we need to give students autonomy and choice to identify the communication platform so they feel that it wasn't done to them, but they've chosen it. That's got to be such an effective way to help establish your relationship with them, that they're feeling like they have some ownership over what's going to happen in their coursework. I try that. I love it. And I have some wins, but I always want to make sure I admit the foils, the foibles, the failures. What I've observed, and we talked about that earlier about this growth, a weakness to me, sometimes I give students too much choice 
And students like, damn, can you just tell me? Right. Because I'm tired of making choices. So there's like <laughs> it's constant balance between empowering them to own and not overwhelming them. I just want your audience to know that you hear the great ideas on these podcasts and you get excited and you see a faculty present. Well, usually they're limited time. And so they just tell you the highlights of what worked. They can't tell you every iteration or every point when hmm, that didn't work out so good. Right. So um, I wanted to make sure I brought that failure out, too, as we worked through it. Yeah, it's a well, great we're talking point. about to Twitter. Think, yeah. So. It's my favorite social media medium in terms of keeping up with news and current conversations. It's great. It does have its drawbacks, obviously, like any social media channel does in the modern age. And it's nice on one hand, too, because it gives you the power to mute conversations you don't want to be a part of, people you don't want to hear, things like that. So autonomy there is great. But I'm kind of curious from your vantage point, you know, you have 22,000 tweets, close to 3,000 followers. And... For you using it so actively, you use the Agate hashtag a lot. I see that you're putting out content from a lot of conferences you attend, things along those lines. What makes you view that as a valuable educational tool? So I'm attempting to curate the conversation, big picture. And this is controversial in some ends, and I've been beating on this drum for a while. And you can see movement. The initial reaction of most faculty or institutions, especially at secondary levels, to be risk averse. And so this could go bad. I'm shutting it down. We're going to ban stuff. I mean, that's usually where we start. And then we realize when we ban, when we're not there, because remember, teachers matter. And so I'm underlying and highlighting that and saying that teachers become our role models of society to help guide conversation. And so when we ban things, I'm taking out these Avenger superheroes, these teachers that I respect, away from the conversation and leaving the trolls and the cockroaches. And I don't like that. So I view it's our job and responsibility to put positivity in the world and help curate and engage and to be that myth buster. And this is one way that we can do it because when I get really sad is when I take a research article that I was really proud of and put a lot of work in, and I look like at the views or the reads of it. Because how much impact did I have? But maybe, maybe if I put an idea out there, I can use social media to help get it out there to disseminate. Because what good is knowledge if it's just with us? So you mentioned hashtags. I've chosen, I think we live almost in a hashtag culture, because remember that earlier goal of fighting through the digital clutter? And so the way we've built our program is we use hashtags for experiences, specifically like a domestic study away. We use hashtag for classes. Our university is built so that it's already made it. All you got to do is put the little pound sign in front of it, and it's pound sign hashtag AE412 because we have course numbering systems, and we can then connect conversations between different years and semesters of classes, and they can see and build and grow, and it's become transferable knowledge, which I think could be fun. And then finally, I'm always trying to build a cohort. That's a little bit unique, but I'll use typically a hashtag called a hashtag PSUAGED20 is the one I'm preparing for because they're going to graduate in 2020 and they're student teaching in 20. Now, what's funny is some people are like, so you work with old people, you know, a- aged, uh, AGED, no, no, AGED, <laughs> not aged. Sometimes there's hashtag fails. So we do the best we can to put that out there. And when people ask me why, it goes back to our earlier conversation of making what we do public. Let people, I mean, geez, guys, uh, let's be real. If I put you in spot, and I'm not, and said, hey, what does an ag teacher do? What's an ag teacher educator? You're like, uh, talk about cows? And, you know, I don't think y'all are that narrow-minded. That was just a joke. But most of, even my family members sometimes don't know what it means 
to do the job or what we're engaging in. So it's just another way to convey that story. So many people don't realize that in our College of Agricultural Sciences, when you talk about applied STEM, when you talk about working and worrying about the issues, they're going to affect all of us. It's happening in the College of Ag Sciences. So I get to help share that going forward. I also add validity to the things that I share with my future teachers because I have built a connection of secondary ag teachers across the world and nation who engage. So I put something out there or I ask a question and there might be an ag teacher from Iowa, Montana, uh, Malaysia who says, oh yeah, that's right. And here's an example. And all of a sudden it's not just coming from the source of Daniel. It's coming from the, who they aspire to be, the colleagues and current secondary ag teachers. So validity goes through the roof. Definitely. I want to give you a chance to plug your Twitter handle because hopefully our audience, we can help gain you some new followers but how uh, we can follow back and forth because right. it's not about chasing just that number of followers it's about building a community that you can talk to engage community of practice is what i'm talking about community of learners i'm a better teacher when i come around other teachers and talk to them about how do we do this and i learn from them so i love tlt's initiative for faculty learning communities shout out to stephanie and the work she did with that we have a global faculty learning community in the college of ag that's led by dr melanie miller foster and dr noel habishi <laughs> uh, in the office of international programs and just yesterday we were sitting in the work session and talking about how do we make our classes how do we make our sessions more engaging i would love to add people to our family of doing this teaching thing which is tough it's hard better and my twitter handle is at foster daniel d that's f-o-s-t-e-r-d-a-n-i-e-l-d and uh, yeah, man, our program's at Teach Ag PSU, and we do a lot of fun things. So it's let's a, party. It's a great follow. Check them out for sure. A lot of fun. I want to ask you on a higher level, Daniel, how do you see as an educator your role with social media? It's, this episode will be a little ways away before we get back into another election cycle, but that's coming on the horizon. We all know the stories that are going to come along with that and the greater impact that the volume of information that's shared on social media has. We're talking big, high-level stuff here, but as educators, you're working with students in their formative years when they are learning how to absorb all this information that's coming at them in a more real way than I think they do during their high school and middle school years. They can think more critically about the information they're receiving. So how do you see your role as an educator evolving in helping students determine what information that they're finding online, whether social media or Google perhaps, is valid, real information or not? In all honesty, it goes back, and we've talked about this, is that what are we here to do? We are not here to tell people how to think. We're here to encourage them to think. And so what that means to me as we talk about this concern, and it is a valid concern in our democratic society and the civilization and conversations that we have about accuracy of information, fake news, if you will, what is real and what is not. We need to create, coach, inspire individuals who are independent thinkers who question, challenge, and then lead. That's what a Penn Stater is. That's what we're here to do, to question, to challenge, to lead in all of our disciplines as we go forward. And so when we engage in these different platforms, not to just take it at face value, right? Just because Karen on Facebook put it out there may not be true, right? But we can say, I don't know if that's true. Now I'm going to go and see if I can triangulate that or figure out what's happening and who is valid sources of information to follow and how do we position ourselves as independent scholars and as an institution as that valid source of information that people can trust and come to. 
accuracy is very important. We think it's important to talk about these subjects and important to yeah. And to I think that's a said. great it's point. It's important to question, challenge, and lead. And into- I shouldn't have said that because well, I hear the comment often that polite company doesn't speak about religion and politics. Well, sometimes I think that's a false narrative in some ways, because if we're developing independent scholars, even though it may be uncomfortable as we live in a divisive society in America today, looking ahead to the 2020 elections, we should have the maturity to be able to talk about the things that we disagree with and to maybe we leave that conversation where we agree to disagree, or maybe we see how the other perspective might be. But I think it's an abdication of responsibility when we say, well, we're just not going to talk about it. I have a responsibility in my class, and this is a driving value. You sit down in there, you have a chance to succeed. I don't care where you come from. I don't care the color of your skin. I don't care your political views and output. And so I do have some strong views there, but knowing when that, yeah, we're here to learn about parliamentary procedure, not about whether climate change or real is today. But if I'm sitting in that environmental natural resources science, we're probably going to read some, in that class, some research reports and start analyzing it through the scientific method in different ways. So it's just knowing our role and responsibility there. Yeah, for sure. I want to rewind a little bit to something you said about how you teach. And you mentioned that it wasn't just opening the student's head and pouring this information in. Great visual, by the way. Definitely great visual. It actually reminded me of one of my favorite quotes, which I think is very applicable here. It's, education is not the filling of a pail, but the lighting of a fire. And that's a quote I always go back to. And I think that's important to keep that in mind when we're teaching and when we're learning. But here in the Dream Recessions, we always like to end with a big question, a question that encourages you and others to dream, to think a little bit, to push the boundaries of even what you're currently doing. What is your dream? Thank you so much for asking. I can honestly say without a shadow of doubt that my dream is that every child in the world, not in America, not in Pennsylvania, that every child in the world knows and has access to a teacher that cares about them. Education is the key. And whether we look at any issue that you've read about in your daily briefings, we can tie it back to the question of, did they have hope? Did they have access to education? Was there a teacher that let them know that they mattered and they could have control over their future? I can go on for days because it drives us. I can tell you to give just a little bit of illustration. This is one reason why my favorite project is the Global Teach Ag Initiative that I work with, with my wife and collaborator, Dr. Melanie Miller-Foster, who has a PhD in rural sociology and is a ton smarter than me. She is our global learning specialist, and I am the innovation specialist. And yes, we made those titles up (laughs) because how can we innovate and effectively empower educators in any context, formal or non-formal, in anywhere in the world to help students, children, community members have hope? And so... I guess I need to be courageous right now and talk about a real issue. Immigration is an issue facing our country. I have been saddened on some of the approaches and tactics of removing U.S. support or aid to certain countries, specifically what they refer to as the triangle of Honduras, Guatemala, and Nicaragua. Because, well, they're still coming, so we're just going to cut off support. I'm like, no, they're taking incredible risk and danger because they don't have hope and they see it as an only path not because of a first choice. And so some of the most powerful experiences I've had is working with educators, with teachers in Western Guatemala, trying to teach agroforestry to the Mayan and indigenous populations, showing them that they can create a future 
for their family and themselves. They don't have to leave because they're proud to be Guatemalans just like I'm proud to be a Texan. That's an example where education matters, teachers matter. And so together, Melly and I work through the Global Teach Ag Initiative to try to help us have teachers teaching about food, fiber, and natural resources that impacts all of us every day, everywhere in the world. When I talk to teachers, it's amazing how we can bring them together and they can collaborate and inspire each other. I know that if I'm not careful, I will go on too long. I want to make sure I, I leave one more. Remember I told you one of my small goals was to share some of that Texas country music with you. Well, see, oh. I'm glad you're getting there because when you hit on that earlier, I'm a huge music fan myself. Discovering new music is one of my absolute favorite things in the world to do. So I'll give you a little frame of reference. And if you can make some recommendations for myself, in terms of country music, it's Lucero, it's Ryan Bingham, it's Uncle Tupelo, it's Drive-By Truckers. So do you have some recommendations, some good stuff to check out? <laughs> oh, we this podcast is going to start over now. What do we do? <laughs> no, uh, I will. Right, give you that those coach. The one. Let me start with the song, a Canadian. How about that? I love it. I know I said Texas country, red dirt, Americana. Which, if you're not listening to Sturgill Simpson, I don't know what you're doing. But the piece here, the song that I want every teacher to think about that's out there is by Corb Lund, and Corb uh, has a song said, "You ain't a cowboy if you ain't been thrown off." Nice. We will get thrown off. We will try to do great things, and sometimes we will fall short, but you just saddle back up, bear down, and start spurring again because great things can happen. And my students and those who know me would be disappointed if they heard this if I didn't. In the, and all of them, they're sing, songwriting Willie Nelson and Waylon Jennings, who was inspired by Bob Wills, who's still the king. And that's it, as this Texan has enjoyed coming and talking to you guys and having fun as we dream together. You've been so generous with your time, Daniel. Thank you so much. It's been a blast. Thank you for joining us on the Dream Recessions today. As a reminder, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Anchor, and Spotify. If you would, please take a moment to subscribe and rate us. And let's keep the conversation going on social media. You can find us on Twitter. I am at Radio underscore Ray. Zach is at Zach Lonzinger. So drop us a line. Let us know who you'd like us to talk to for future episodes, topics that you would like us to cover. We really look forward to hearing your feedback.